Hey friends, your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish. Today I thought I'd go through all of the published adventures that Wizards of the Coast puts out and talk about my ranking of them. If you are watching this video or listening to this podcast, there is going there is a table of contents available that lets you skip to the description of any one of the adventures that I'm talking about. If you want to hear me just talk about a particular adventure, you can jump to that section. I will not be hurt if you only want to listen to the sections you're interested in. That is why the table of contents is there, so please use it. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. You too can become a patron of Sly Flourish by going to patreon.com slash slyflourish and signing up. You get access to all kinds of exclusive content, but most of all, you help me uh, put on shows like this. So uh, yeah, it'd be, it'd be awesome if you wanted to be a patron. You can also uh, subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. You can do so by going to slyflourish.com slash subscribe. Uh, or if you go to the Sly Flourish homepage, a pop-up will come up and offer you the newsletter. It's a great way to get all of the articles that I, that I produce each week to your inbox every Tuesday afternoon. So that's a good way to do it. And if you're on YouTube, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel and you will get the latest videos. I'm doing a lot more videos. Expect more videos. I expect shorter videos. This is not going to be a short video. This is probably going to be a long video because talking about every single one of the published hardback adventures is going to take time. There are a few adventures I am not going to be talking about today. Uh, there'd be a, there's a couple that are sort of different than the others. Uh, Tales from the Yawning Portal... Uh, Dungeon of the Mad Mage and Candlekeep Mysteries are all adventures I'm probably not, not going to talk about. I could talk a little bit about Tales of the Awning Portal because I've run those adventures, but I haven't run the adventures in Candlekeep Mysteries and I haven't run the adventures in Dungeon of the Mad Mage. So I'm not going to be talking about those. And that's okay because they're kind of different adventures anyway. Uh, the other ones are sort of big, hairy campaign adventures that are all integrated together. They all have like a big storyline to it. So those are really the ones that I'm focused on. Another point that I'd like to make is I've actually run what I'm talking about. So, and in, in many cases, I, I've run nearly all of the adventures that Wizards of the, Wizards of the Coast has published for fifth edition. Uh, and, I've, and I've run many of them more than once. Uh, so I have run some of them twice. And then there's a few that I haven't run and those I won't talk. And I'm going to talk about Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. I am running it currently for two groups, but I'm still only in chapter one. So I have to qualify my Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, or uh, yeah, I have to qualify my Rhyme of the Frostmaiden thoughts by saying I haven't finished it yet. And I'll probably do something later. My hope with this video is that as new adventures come up, I can talk about those in relation to all of the rest of these. So I can talk about the list ranking and I can point back to this video and say, if you want to see how I feel about all of the ones that have been published up so far, you can do this. And maybe in a few years, I'll come back and do another video. But my hope is that this will cover it. So yeah, I'm going to follow along to an article that I wrote called A Guide to Official D&D 5th Edition Published Adventures. I wrote this back and started it back in 2017, but I've been keeping it up every year and I've been adding new adventures as, as they've been coming out. And I plan to continue to to update it. So uh, these adventures are listed by my order of preference. With each adventure, I want to talk about kind of what it's about a little bit, then why I think it deserves the place that it deserves on the list, and what are some things that you can do or that you have to do to really wrangle it into a, an adventure that you would want to run for your group, the things that I would recommend you do. And of course, this is just one person's opinion, right? It's just my opinion on the matter. Everybody's got their opinions on, on these. I don't claim that mine is right and anyone else's is wrong. The only thing I will say is I've actually ran them. So if you're, if you're kind of theory crafting based on what you've read, that's different than if you've actually run it. And my opinions on adventures have changed. So my number one adventure, it probably is no surprise, which is Lost Mine of Fandelver. Uh, Lost Mine of Fandelver is the adventure that comes in the D&D starter 
starter set. It was actually the first fifth edition published adventure that Wizards of the Coast put out in paper. And it's a great adventure. It's a straightforward D&D adventure. It has four big chapters. It has lots of room for the characters to go off in different directions. And it's a, just a, it just feels like D&D, right? It doesn't have any particular angle or theme. It is adventurers going off on adventures, dealing with all of the people that are causing problems around a small town in, the, in Forgotten Realms. It is set in Forgotten Realms, but Forgotten Realms is also sort of generic fantasy setting. So it works really well. I, I love it and I've run it many times. I've run it more than just once or twice. I've run it, I've run it a few times and, and I, I love it. I think it's a great, it's a great adventure. What's interesting about it is that as a starter set adventure it has two features I think get lost. Uh, one is the monsters that they selected for Lost Mine of Fandelver are a really good cross section of your, of your monsters from fifth level and below and give you a lot of room to build your own adventures with just those monsters. So you could play a lot of D&D with, this, with just the box set because the monsters are your, are your good standard array of monsters. Uh, second, the locations that you go to are also kind of the top type of, types of locations you would go to in a D&D game. It's got ruined castles. It's got thieves' dens. It's got goblin caves. It's got big dwarven mines. It's got lots of different adventure locations that you would typically use in a game, which means you can reuse the maps for lots of things, right? If you just have the starter set, you can sort of turn the turn the map sideways and run it again, and people wouldn't even know that you were doing it. So, so I think it's a really valuable adventure, even if you were homebrewing your stuff, just having that set of monsters and having those maps in place is, and it has a great, yeah, he's not your problem mentions, has a great starting town. The starting town is very straightforward. There's interesting things to do. There's lots of fun, fun things to do there. Uh, so it's a, it's a really good adventure and, and I like it. And that's why it's my number one favorite adventure. I think it's easy to run. It is very ubiquitous. Many people have run it, has, it, it's pure D and D. It just feels like D and D. And I love it. It is a close second. And, and I honestly could probably say that both of these adventures I love equally. And I don't know which one to put on top. But the starter set makes more sense. So I'm going to put the starter set on top. And that's Dragon of Icepire Peak. I love Dragon of Icepire Peak a lot. I love the style of it. It is also set in Fandelver, or Fandolin. The town is named Fandolin. It's also set in Fandolin, which means you can mash up Lost Mine of, Fand- of Fandelver and Dragon of Icepire Peak together. You know, you can run them side by side and sort of have all the quests from both could be available. It would be a lot and it would be a lot to take on with just first to fifth level characters, but you could do it. And it'd be a really rich town if you did that. Lots of interesting things happening in lots of different ways. So Dragon of Ice Rare Peak, one of the things I love about it, it is also very much your your quintessential D&D adventure, your, uh, your heroes, big damn heroes going off on adventures. I really like the quest structure. The quest structure is built on a job board. There is a job board in town. There are jobs that are put up. There are three quests on it at any given time. You can complete two of those three quests, at which point the third quest is pulled down and then three new quests go up. And this operates all the way up through like, you know, six, six level. It is an excellent adventure. It's really, I think it's really easy to run. I, I ran it. If you, if you watch, if you go to my YouTube channel, you can see me running this for Enrique Bertrand, the new BDM. He and I both played through it and it was, it was excellent. Yeah, it is. I, I didn't mention this. It is the adventure that is included in the D and D essentials kit which is kind of like another starter set, only it has character building options and it has gameplay for one-on-one D&D in it. So both the starter set and the essentials kits are fantastic products and have fantastic adventures and I love them. And yes, one of the things that Dragon of Icebriar Peak has is inside, I think it's got a 50% coupon off of the player's handbook on, on D&D Beyond. 
and it has three free adventures that go on top of Dragon Ice Spire Peak. They take Dragon of Ice Spire Peak, I think, all the way up to 14th level. And they were written by Will Doyle, James Intercasso, and Sean Merwin, three excellent writers in this field. And they wrote these three extra adventures that you can get on the DMs Guild, I'm, I'm sorry, on D&D Beyond for free uh, when you have purchased the D&D Essentials Kit. So you essentially have the equivalent of a hardback adventure that you get for whatever it costs you to buy the D&D Essentials Kit, which is dirt cheap. Uh, and, and many, many times of the year, you can get it for cheap. There was, uh, I think the last Christmas we were able to get it for under 10 bucks, which is crazy cheap. We bought, I bought as many as I could buy and gave them away to people here all over the place. So those are my, my top two adventures, right? Lost Mine of Fandelver and Dragon of Icebreaker Peak, I think are excellent adventures, easy to run. They're fun. They're pure D&D. Love them. My next favorite adventure is the first of the hardcover adventures, and that's Curse of Strahd. And I am not alone in loving Curse of Strahd. It is a very, it is their most popular hardback adventure and and it's it's real fun it is different than a typical DD adventure it is not a traditional DD adventure it is definitely a you know dark fantasy and horror focused DD adventure but it has really deep bones it's 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 a it's got deep roots and it comes from old bones which is the original i6 ravenloft adventure one of the most popular i think it's like the number two most popular DD adventure of all time and really it should be number one because number one is tomb of an island or tomb of horrors and tomb of horrors is a pain in the ass it's based on i6 ravenloft uh made by tracy and, it's made by tracy and laura hickman and it was an adventure that they ran for their groups every year on halloween and i've picked up that tradition and i try to run it i didn't run it a couple of years but for about the last four or five years, I've run Curse of Strahd. I've run the Ravenloft portion of Curse of Strahd every Halloween, and I love it. It's just a great adventure. It is your pure, you know, it's right out of Bram Stoker's Dracula, right? There's a vampire lord who's, uh, you know, trying to uh, convince a woman to join him, and she doesn't want to, and the party gets involved and is trying to stop his evil villainy in a very gothic town and a very gothic area. What Curse of Strahd did is they took the original I-6 Ravenloft and polished it just a little bit. They kept it very true to the original and then added a lot of other material around it, including dozens of other adventure locations. And it just runs really well. One of the things that sets Curse of Strahd apart from all of the other adventures I'm going to talk about today is that you don't have to change it very much, but there's lots of room to change it if you do want to. And that's a big difference in an adventure. Adventures that you change because you have to change it are different to me than adventures that you can change because you want to change it. And Curse of Strahd, I felt like I could run it out of the box with hardly any changes. While it is a big sandbox adventure with lots of different adventure locations, there is a clear theme and direction to the adventure, which is based on collecting the artifacts that you need in order to save Irina Koyana from the devil Strahd, right? And, and you know that killing Strahd is the main goal. It's got a wonderful villain. It's got really cool locations. Uh, it has an excellent starting adventure uh, called Death House. It's a level one adventure. Although honestly, you're gonna get killed and you're gonna wipe players out if you run it at level one. So what I recommend is getting to level two before they get to Death House and then running Death House at level two and level three instead of level one and level two. And I think everybody will have a better time with that. So, you know, one good encounter against some wolves 
and then let them see that Strahd is there with the wolves. And then they get to level two and then let them go to Death House and they can go to level two and level three. Excellent adventure. I love it. Uh, I don't feel that it needs a lot of changes. I think one tricky bit is just making sure that you're tying the threads of the locations to the goals of the characters. You don't really have to do a lot of work with that, but it can't hurt. It's just a wonderful adventure. It's obviously their most popular adventure. Wizards of the Coast recent, recently put out a box set. Beetle and Grimm put out a box set. I have a review of that that I've done before. Wonderful, you know, really wonderful adventure. And I love it. My next one up is Ghosts of Saltmarsh. Uh, Ghosts of Saltmarsh is a different kind of adventure than the other hardback adventures that Wizards has done. It is, it is more similar to Tales of the Yawning Portal in the sense that it's a bunch of classic adventures put together in, in a new package. The difference between, between Tales of the Yawning Portal and Ghosts of Saltmarsh is that in Ghosts of Saltmarsh, they, they can all be connected together into a campaign. And I did so for two different groups, and I had a wonderful time doing it. And I really enjoyed running these adventures. The town of Saltmarsh is really cool. Most of the adventures are, are excellent and they're very customizable. You can really tune the adventures around story ideas that you've got. There's a, one, a wealth of material in the book. It has adventure locations for all the whole area around the Saltmarsh region. It has a bunch of extra material in the appendices that let you have kind of nautical, more nautical adventures, sea, seafaring adventures. It's really, really excellent. My only poke in the eye. The only thing I will poke Ghost of Saltmarsh for is that one of the adventures in it uh, is, is, is really pretty bad. The, the adventure in it is Isle of the Abbey. And Isle of the Abbey, I tried running twice, and both times it was a disaster. And it's a disaster because the dungeon design is really not good. The layout of the dungeon and the way it plays out is really not good. The editing also is pretty bad for that for that particular adventure. I don't know what happened, but there's lots of errors where the, the flavor text tells you one thing and then the description of the room tells you something else, like totally different kinds of monsters and stuff like that. So that one adventure is probably best either removed or replaced with something else, or you can use the theme of that adventure, but then replace it with a different map and different monsters and different stuff because it's just not a great, that one adventure, Isle of the Abbey, is is I, I'm I'm I like to pick on it a lot, and it's because I ran it, and it was for, to me like the first time I saw a bad adventure. It's like wow, this is really a bad adventure. The first half of that of Isle of the Abbey is actually kind of cool, but even that I changed a lot. So the the trick with running Ghost of Salt Marsh is that you really want to tie the the the, the storyline of the town and have that weave through the adventures that you're running. And a big theme of the town is that there's two major factions that are kind of at odds with one another, but there's actually a third faction, the Scarlet Brotherhood, who is secretly manipulating things behind the scenes. And that that part of it is a lot of fun to play with. And you wanna make sure that you're continually seeding that that major plot line through the adventures as you're running them. There's also lots of room for cool, like HP Lovecrafty sort of stuff. I, I did a cult of Tharzadun and had a whole, uh, a whole Tharzadun plot line that was going on and replaced a lot of the big villains and monsters that are in some of the adventures with Tharzadun based ones. There's one, uh, there's a really excellent um, salvage operation is one of the one of the adventures, one of the one-shot adventures in there. And it has like a Loth-worshipping druid-type orc, and I changed it to a Tharzadun priest, and that worked far better, and then it tied into adventures later. Yeah, really love Ghost of Saltmarsh. I like it a lot. I think it's an excellent one, and I, it is one I do recommend. Uh, which is interesting. It's interesting if you look at the fact that Curse of Strahd and Ghost of Saltmarsh both are built upon old adventures. And maybe this is a bias of mine. Maybe I am biased towards 
old quote unquote classic adventures, but I think they run really well. All, all of the three adventures that are tied together, Sinister Secrets of Saltmarsh, Danger at Dunwater, and The Final Enemy are three adventures that work together that are all inside this one adventure path. And all of them are what I refer to as situation-based adventures, that a situation is there, the characters figure out how they're going to navigate it. It isn't a plot-driven adventure. There's not like scene to scene to scene to scene to scene. Instead, it's here's what's going on in this place and DMs go to town, right? And and let the players decide how they're going to approach it and the DM figures out how to work with it. So they're just, they're, they're really good adventures. Tomb of Annihilation is my the next one on my list. I really enjoyed running Tomb. I ran it for, again, I ran that for two groups. I think both all of the adventures I've talked about so far I've run for either, for two or more groups. And it is a really fun jungle exploration, hex crawl, you know, location-based adventures that you can go on. It's got a really cool city, Port Nyanzaru, a very different kind of city than all of the other cities you would typically find in the Forgotten Realms. Really neat characters and plots that are going on there. And then once you go into the jungle, the jungle itself really feels like this dark and dangerous place and that there's lots of hazards that you have to worry about and lots of options for the characters to choose how they want to go about. One thing I love about Tomb of Annihilation is it's packed with interesting adventure locations. There's probably 25 or 30 different major adventure locations that have cool maps and scenes that are going on there and lots of things you can do. And that that really adds to the exploration of the overall of the overall uh, island of Omu, not of, of Omu of, of Chult. So I really enjoyed that. It was it was you know you you have lots of room for plots to go on there, and then you get to the second half of the adventure, which is the city of Omu, the lost city of Omu, and then to the final act, which is going into the tomb of the nine gods. This this really really deadly dungeon unlike the other the reason why tomb is not like my number one or number two uh is that it does have some things you have to do to fix it in my opinion but the things that you have to do to fix it are not hard to do as long as you know you have to do them and the things that you need to, to fix are one there's a lot of opportunity for npcs to either uh, upstage the characters or take them in directions that really aren't where they need to be going so you need to be very careful with the npcs that you add to the group the book has a bunch of different NPCs that can join your group. But some of them are like, send the characters off on red herrings or other characters are just too powerful. And so you really want to make sure that the, the NPCs stay in the background and they're, they, they don't take over. I've heard many, many stories of groups that ran Tomb of Annihilation and the group, the, 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 the player characters got upstaged by the NPCs who ended up becoming more important and doing having a bigger effect on the game than the characters did. And you don't want that to happen. And it's easy to happen if you if you don't get a handle on it. So another thing you're gonna to wanna to do is you're gonna need some kind of starter adventure because there isn't one in Tomb of Annihilation. Un unlike most of the other adventures, there isn't a level one adventure that kind of gets you started in the adventure, which I think is a shame. However, uh, there is a adventure on the DMs Guild called Cellar of Death, written by James Intercasso, that many people have used as a starter adventure. It's a very, very popular product on the DMs Guild. It's an excellent adventure by an awesome writer, and it's a great way to get started in this. You can also kind of roll your own starter adventure, which is what I did. I ran a little scene in Baldur's Gate where the characters found the last cultist of uh, the last cultist of Baal who had figured out that the death curse was happening. And the characters were then hired by uh, their patron to go figure out what this whole death curse is. What's going on with that? We don't know what it's about. 
So having some kind of starter adventure is is important. And then they can get into Port Nye and Zaru and everything opens up. Uh, number three, the death curse causes issues in the game. And it's because if if everybody knows that the death curse is very dangerous, why are they sending level one characters to go deal with it? Why wouldn't you be getting your biggest, best heroes and having them go deal with it? So one thing is to keep your hand on the dial of the death curse, both mechanically and thematically, that... Uh, the death, you know, mechanically, don't worry too much about the fact that people are losing hit points every day and that eventually they die. Because the problem with that is the party will never want to do anything outside of immediately trying to go stop it because they know people are going to be falling over dead. Uh, and, and the same thing thematically, it's better that the, the death curse remains a mystery, that we don't know exactly what's happening, but we know something is happening. We know what's happening in the south the south part of Cholt, and we need you to go down there and figure out what it is. And then they can get clues as they're going. And by the time they get into tier two, by the, you know, like level five, and then later on level six, seven, eight, then they can realize like, oh my God, people are really in a bad state and we got to solve this problem. Keep your hand on the dial of the death curse and, and, and make sure it's not so overbearing that A, it doesn't make sense why first level characters would be dealing with it. And B, that they don't feel like they can't have any fun exploring anything else because the whole world is at risk if they don't solve this problem, right? You, wanna, you don't want it to be so severe that they feel like every other side trek is, is getting in the way of the fact that people are falling over dead. The last tip I have for running Tomb of Annihilation is you really want to be careful about the deadliness of the Tomb of the Nine Gods. Most of this adventure, the characters are growing and they're growing with each other and they're learning things about themselves and they're you, all the things that happen when players get involved with characters. And then you hit like level eight, level seven, level eight, level nine, and you go into the Tomb of the Nine Gods and you can get killed with a single button press. And many times there's no real clues to tell you how dangerous the situation is. And then suddenly a character is dead. And I've, I killed multiple characters in multiple groups only in the Tomb of the Nine Gods right? And it's really deadly. So instead, I would recommend like keeping your hand on the, keep your hand on the deadliness and use like mortal wounds instead. Use like permanent, the permanent injury table from the dungeon master's guide is a great way to have a big impact on a character without necessarily killing them. So maybe like if they go into the black sarcophagus and a button is pressed and they open it up, they didn't get disintegrated, but their arm is gone, right? Like that would be a big deal, right? Be careful with the deadliness of the tomb because it's far deadlier than the rest of the adventure. Thematically, it's just a big shift. You you want to be careful that like suddenly this adventure goes from like a very character-driven adventure of high adventure to all of a sudden they're dying left and right. So those are my four tips for tomb. I love the adventure. I think it's great. It again, thematically, it's not your pure straightforward DD. It's it's got this kind of heavy jungle, jungle focused theme, which is great fun but it's a little different than your standard D&D fair. So now we're about in the middle of the the middle of the list here. And Storm King's Thunder uh is 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 in the middle of the list. So Storm King's Thunder is a huge wide spanning adventure that covers like 2000 to 5000 miles of the Sword Coast all the way from Baldur's Gate all the way up to the spine of the world to to Icewind Dale. It's a huge span. And it's got hundreds of adventure locations in it. I think there's one chapter that has like 120 adventure locations in it. And the storyline is pretty loose on purpose. Now, Storm King's Thunder is designed to be a very open adventure. It's designed that the DM and the players really dictate where they go and what they do. It says very clearly in the beginning that this is not a ticking time bomb adventure. This isn't like, 
you know, if they go off on a side quest, big plots are moving forward without them. It's intended to offer a lot of room. And that room can be a problem. Uh, I remember one of my one of my kind of things that clued me in is we were in the middle of playing Storm King's Thunder and I was at a gaming shop with one of the groups and I overheard and we have a couple of the players were kind of off in a different part of the shop and I kind of snuck up behind him and they were talking about it. And one guy says, I don't know, are we even playing the adventure? Right? Like I, I'm having a good time, but I don't know what we're doing, right? Like is this, I thought this was about giants and we haven't done anything with giants in six weeks. Right. And, and that was, they were like, yeah, they're having fun, but like they're involved in all this political drama around Daggerford. And they're like, what does this have to do with giants? Right. They were expecting to have like a clean, clear adventure that, that went along a certain storyline. And instead they were just like the storylines they got into with the ones that happened. And that was a lot of fun. But if you're looking for a more dictated theme, you're not going to get it with this. Uh, it has a lot, Storm King's Thunder has a lot of material you can pilfer for other games. It's got five big giant layers that you can kind of drop into any, any area where you need a big giant layer. It's got all kinds of information about the Sword Coast. What I actually think is interesting is if you take the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide and Storm King's Thunder, together you have this really big campaign where the players can read all about the Sword Coast from the, the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. And you and the DM can run adventures out of Storm King's Thunder, and you can really have a big Sword Coast adventure. So I like it from that factor. Uh, it's got a great villain, Imrith. Uh, the the ancient blue dragon is a is a really cool villain. It's it's got a lot going on. But one of the problems is that the the issues with the giants, the whole storyline of the adventure is that the giants. There's this thing called the ordning, which is the the order of the giants in the in the world. I think in the cosmology too, and the ordning gets shattered. So now there's no real leadership among the giants, and all the giants are kind of off doing their own things. And somebody needs to put them back in place. The hard part is like, why is that the character? Why don't the giants fix their problem? Why are the characters figuring out this problem? So you have to kind of work that. And I I changed it up by having Imrith being very responsible for this whole thing. She was the one that caused it, and she's doing it for vengeance because of. Uh, what the the events that occurred in the Tyranny of Dragons campaign. And that worked really well for me. We'll get to Tyranny of Dragons here in a second. It's the very next one. So a trick with Storm King's Thunder is to keep in mind that it is a huge widespread adventure with lots of stuff. And it's more of an adventure toolkit or a campaign toolkit than it is an adventure because there's just so much to do. You're, there's no way you're going to run it all. And you have to kind of decide what sort of story you want to piece together from all the material that's in uh, the adventure. So I like it. This is this is kind of the line, you know, right right around the Tomb of Annihilation, Storm King's Thunder line is the line where we go from things that you might want to do to make your adventures more fun to things that you kind of have to do to make your adventures more fun. And Storm King's Thunder, I think there's things you have to do to make it more fun, but it can be a lot of fun and I like it and I like it for that. So next we get to the original hardback adventures that uh, Wizards of the Coast put out for D&D and that's Horde of the Dragon Queen and Rise of Tiamat. Uh, these two adventures, they, they came out about, I think they came out the same time. It was two books, but now they've put them into one book called Tyranny of Dragons. And uh, which includes both. It is a one to 16 campaign adventure. Again, the first campaign adventure they ever put out. And it shows the fact that it was the first campaign adventure. Uh, Cobalt Press, uh, the third party publisher who now publishes lots and lots of D&D stuff was actually responsible for building this adventure. And it's a really neat, widespread, high velocity, great big event adventure. And it's got a lot of really cool stuff in it. It's an adventure that many people have played. So there's a lot of, 
camaraderie among D&D fans for talking about what it was like when they played Horde of the Dragon Queen and Rise of Tiamat. It is more of an episodic adventure than almost all of the others. Uh, many of the other adventures, all the other ones that I've talked about, except for like Ghost of Saltmarsh, are sort of sandboxy. You can kind of go different directions and try different things, and there's sort of lots of different paths you can take. Tyranny of Dragons, each chapter, you're kind of going to a major location and doing a major thing all the way through it. In many cases, they run really well. Again, very situational-based D&D. Greenest in Flames, chapter one. Uh, there's a whole town that's getting attacked by, cult of the, by the Cult of the Dragon, and you have to go in there and help them, right? That's a very much a sandbox. Then chapter two and chapter three are you go to the major campsite, which is like an abandoned mine, uh, where the cult has formed up, and your job is to kind of get in there, figure out what they're doing and why. One of the problems with Horde of the Dragon Queen is in one of the chapters, you go all the way from the town of Greenest, which is really far south. I'm looking at a map that I've got on my, on my wall here. You go from the town of Greenest really far south along a huge path all the way to uh, Waterdeep. And it's like a thousand mile journey. And it's one chapter where you go on a thousand mile journey. It takes months, right? Uh, I think at least takes certainly weeks and make, and probably months. And the, th the plot thread that you follow in order to go on this thousand mile journey is really, really thin. Like, you know, a miscommunication among an NPC could mean you'd never do it. Making sure that you have multiple reasons and multiple ways that the characters can go from the far town of Greenest all the way to the south, all the way up to Waterdeep. You, you want to have something for that idea. That, that's where I get into like, this is something you have to do, right? You have to figure that out. So there's lots of different ways to do that, but you, it's something you need to pay attention to. Once you kind of get through that, the rest of it runs pretty smoothly. Rise of Tiamat is, is far less played than Horde of the Dragon Queen, and it has more situations too. And probably the big thing you have to worry about there is there's this drive to get the dragon masks. And you have to recognize that like the cult of the dragon doesn't actually need the dragon masks in order to summon Tiamat. I think they only need three of the five. And that makes sense because the characters can pretty easily get two. So there's lots of room for customization. Uh, there's lots of room for the story to grow. One of the things that I really think back fondly on is that the events that happened in, in Tyranny of Dragons affected all of the other adventures that I ran or many of the other adventures I ran. So events that took place in Storm King's Thunder and in Waterdeep Dragon Heist and in uh, Descent into Avernus all kind of spawned from the events that happened in Tyranny of Dragons. And I think that that is a really fun, it's a really fun way to, to run these adventures. So I, I really, I really dig them. So the next one on my list, we're starting to get into the lower half of the list. And this is definitely where like work needs to be done in order to make these adventures really sing, right? And uh, the first one of these is Waterdeep Dragon Heist. So Waterdeep Dragon Heist is also a different kind of adventure. If you, It's like the polar opposite of Storm King's Thunder, right? Storm King's Thunder is huge and covers thousands of miles of territory and has 150 adventure locations and all these different things, all this different stuff. And Waterdeep Dragon Heist only takes place in the city of Waterdeep. It is more episodic than the other ones. It is not very sandboxy in its nature. It kind of has a couple chapters. You can do a bunch of different things, but those end up actually not working as well as, as you would hope. There's a lot of material in the book that is excellent. It has a really good primer on the city of Waterdeep. So if you're running Waterdeep, it's really good to, to have this book to tell you all about Waterdeep and lots of locations and, and side adventures. It's got four villainous bases that you can use. You know, it's got like a villainous base for Lord Manshoon, the Xanathar, the devil-worshipping Castellanter family, and uh, Brigand, Brigand Yeah, Jarlaxle's group. So it's got a lot of material you can use. Uh, 
of the adventure itself, I think there's like five chapters or six chapters. And a couple of them are really great. Chapter one is excellent. And chapter three is excellent. They're both situation-based adventures of very good, straightforward D&D adventuring. Uh, chapters two and chapters four need a lot of work. Uh, the problem with chapter two is it's sort of like a, okay, everybody go on adventures, right? And it doesn't really have anything to do with the rest of the adventure. And it's got all these like side paths that don't really have to do with anything. Lots of like mini quests that you can go on, sort of faction-based things. But it's really easy for a group to be like, I don't know why I'm doing all these odd jobs, right? Like I thought there was an adventure we were going on. You can, you kind of have to decide what of those adventures you want to run or what other adventures of your own you want to run while chapter two would be taking place. And then suddenly you can move into chapter three in which a fireball explodes and you get right back into the adventure again. Chapter four, it's built as a chase, but it actually doesn't work well as a chase because it's too easy for the characters to circumvent the chase, either miss it completely, like they decide to take a long rest and the whole main chase part takes place without them, or they cast a mentioned door and they catch the guy right away. And there's a really ham-fisted description about, there's a, a MacGuffin, there's an object that's like a key. There's this ham-fisted description of how this, the key is sentient and doesn't like you if you get it too early. And if you get the key too early, it won't cooperate with you and it will do everything in its power to be stolen by somebody else. And you're like, oh, it's the worst kind of like ham-fisted way of saying, you need to go on this chase. The chase needs to take place in a certain pace. And if you don't follow the chase this way, it's bad. That's chapter four, and it really needs work. Chapter four can work really well as an investigation. You know that the key moved from here to here to here to here to here, and you have to kind of follow its path and figure out who got it and where they took it and what they did with it. Uh, that re that works really well. It's a, it's a fun adventure. I've run it, for again, for two groups. Really liked it. I also like it as sort of, an, an, again, a side story of the results of what happened because of Horde of the Dragon Queen. The idea that Lord Neverember, before he got kicked out as the High Lord of Waterdeep, stole half a million gold dragons and hid it somewhere in the city and then got deposed and he's trying to get it right and his son know that he knows that he stole it and you have to try to help him get it back right and, and make sure it doesn't get lost or stolen by some other group you know a half a million gold dragons is enough to change the face of the sword coast if the wrong group gets it so that could really work out now we're starting to get in the lower third of hardback adventures. And uh, the next one in line is Out of the Abyss. And I have to be honest, I only played half of Out of the Abyss. I played the first half. It is a great big adventure. I think it's another like one to 16 adventure. I think it was the third adventure that, the third of the hardcover adventures that Wizards of the Coast put out. And I really liked it. And it's actually, the fact that it's as low on the list as it is surprises me. And I might be willing to knock it up higher. But I think the first half of it was a lot of fun. Again, I, I, this one I only ran for one group. I didn't run it for my, 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 my Wednesday group. I ran it for my Sunday group. But I really dug it. I, I enjoyed the whimsical nature of the Underdark. I really liked all the different locations you could go to, like uh, Gracklestug, the, the Duergar city that exists under there, or... Uh, the, the, you know, the, the fungus grove that exists. There was lots of really neat places. It was, they, they tried to go very Alice in Wonderland with it. And I think they succeeded. It was really fantastic. Like when I think about fantastic locations, it was full of fantastic locations. It wasn't just one dark cave after another. It had a lot of really neat stuff. And some of the imagery in it, like uh, having the Qtoa, so having this whole section about the Q-Toa and you know that the Q-Toa are, are kind of, you know, nutty 
and they're all doing these weird rituals. And then all of a sudden Demogorgon comes crawling out of the lake while they're worshiping, you know, their dark God. And you're like, oh my God, Demogorgon is real, right? That kind of stuff is, the imagery is just awesome. And I loved scenes like that. It was just a really fun, the imagery in this adventure I really loved. That said, like, I tried to read the second half and I was like, I can't get my head around it. And there's like leading armies through the Underdark and all kinds of strange stuff that happened. You know, I just, I just couldn't get my head around it. And so I only ran the first half and then I had it get to the point where they escaped. And once they escaped, the adventure was over. And that was fine. Like it worked out, it worked out fine. So I think I would still recommend Out of the Abyss if it's the kind of adventure you want to run. It does have a problem of too many NPCs that everybody talks about the fact that there's like 14 NPCs introduced to you in five minutes in the beginning of the adventure. And what I actually liked is I introduced a bunch of the NPCs, but then they all scattered and they, they would run into the NPCs throughout the rest of the Underdark every so often. But you don't want to have them leading 12 NPCs, right? You want like one NPC at a time and everything and everything can work out well. Now we're getting to the bottom three and I put Rime of the Frostbane. This is a new addition today which is, I was trying to think about based on what I've read and based on what I've run so far, where does Rime of the Frostmaiden sit? My problem with Rime of the Frostmaiden is, is a lot like what I've described before. I, I am in the middle of it right now and I have to do a lot of work to make this a manageable adventure in a lot of different ways. One is the theme of it doesn't, work that it doesn't work for me or my group or what I want to run, which is the idea of like, if you're in 10 towns and the speakers of 10 towns are, are murdering their own town folk to the frost maiden, what care, why would you want to work with them at all? Right? Like the towns are in such a bad state in that case that like, it's really easy to be like, oh, to hell with them. I'm going to go off. So the theme of it's really hard. Like why you want to do the adventures you want to do is something that's not well established and I don't think works well out of the box. So one of my big recommendations for it is to make sure that your characters, the goal of your characters is to help the people of 10 towns survive the endless night. That way the job, their goal isn't to end the endless night. They, they might, that might become their goal, but it isn't their starting goal because none of the starting quests have anything to do with that. And most of the quests in chapter two don't have anything to do with that, you know? So you're not, you don't want to go on a bunch of odd, odd job quests when you don't have any reason to. So instead you give them reason. And the reason is your job is to do odd job quests, right? Your job is to help anybody, you know, everybody's having a hard time and your job is to help them get, a, you know, survive, right? But another step for that is to add a different antagonist that's responsible for the sacrifices. And in that case, I used the Cult of Oral. I added a Cult of Oral that has sway over the people of Ten Towns, but is not, um, you know, they're not the speakers of Ten Towns. At least they're not, you know, the speakers aren't, you know, the speakers aren't cultists. Maybe one or two of them are. That could be interesting. So that way the players don't feel like they, you know, the towns are bad. They just feel like, okay, we get that the cult is bad. And we also understand that a lot of people believe the cult is right. So we can't just go kill them, right? And it makes for a much more interesting angle. So I really like doing that. Managing all of the different quests is really hard. The, the, the book takes a very loosey-goosey approach towards how you should run it. It says things like pick any one of the towns to run the event, you know, to start off your adventure and or roll randomly. But eight out of the 10 quests are going to kill first level characters really easily, right? Maybe more. I think 10 out of 12 are going to murder first level characters. 
so it turns out running in Bryn Shander, which they do recommend in the book, is really the place you should start. And it would have been better if they said start in Bryn Shander and then let them explore any way they want to go, right? So slight changes at the beginning can have a huge impact. And, and saying start in Bryn Shander is not a big lift. But what is a big lift is things like adding in the cult, understanding how you're supposed to divvy out the quests to make sure that the players have enough options to try different things, but not so few uh, but not so many that they get lost, right? It's really hard to manage all the quests and to know what paths they should take. Uh, the book has a ridiculous flow chart about how you should run it. And the flow chart is run chapter one and then run chapter two and then run chapter three and then run chapter four and then five and then six and then seven. And you're like, that's a table of contents. It's not a flow chart, right? And the answer is there is no flow chart because they don't have any way that you should run all the quests, right? They don't have a method for you to run all the quests, which means... As I'm running it, I'm doing a lot of work in order to figure out which quests should be there, which quests shouldn't, which ones fall off the board, which ones get added. And then like, how do I transition from chapter one to chapter two? From reading it, again, I haven't run the second half of it, but I'm reading the second half of it and thinking about how I'm going to run it. And I know I'm going to have to change stuff. Like it's it's well known that like the whole Shardalon dragon attack doesn't really work, that the timing doesn't work right. And there's all sorts of questions about like, why is... You know, what? why would they go down into Yethrin if they can end the Endless Night by killing a rock on an island, right? So there's all sorts of things that I have to change in order to make sure that the rest of the adventure is going to run smooth. And it's just a lot of work, right? To me, it's a lot of work for 50 bucks. You know, that's my common complaint. I'm paying 50 bucks. Help me, right? Help me out. And I think they were trying to go for a wide open sandbox. My friend Sam Dillon is running it and he's saying he's not having any problem with it. And the reason why is he says, I'm used to running sandbox adventures. And probably more importantly, his players are used to running in sandbox adventures where they just sort of pick their own hooks and go with them. My groups want to have a hook, right? They want, and I feel like I want to give them one. So, so yeah, so I'm having a lot more trouble running Rhyme of the Frostman than I would hope to have given that I paid 50 bucks for the adventure. My, my friend Teos is online right now and he says, I wish they had spent time telling DMs how to run it right? $50, help me out. You know, cut me some slack here. Uh, I got into some early debates about uh, one of the first quests. There's a quest in it, against this is full of Frostmaiden spoilers. There's a quest in it called Cold-Hearted Killer. And in Cold-Hearted Killer, the characters are conscripted to go hunt down a serial killer. Not even hunt them down, just go get them because they already know who it is, which is kind of lame. The, but the, the NTC that you fight, he's a CR3 guy that does like 28 damage around. At level one, he's going to cut you to pieces, right? And I, I had two different groups of people that argued with me. One said, oh, he's not that bad. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'll kill your group with him, right? 28 damage around if you play him right. He's deadly, right? Really deadly at first level. The second one I got was, well, you're not intended to fight him at first level. And I'm like, great. Where does it say that in the book? And it doesn't, of course, say that in the book, right? That's my, so help me out, right? That's all I'm saying. When I pay that kind of money, help me out. And it, and it doesn't help me out. So that's why it's third from the bottom of the list. Next one down is Princes of the Apocalypse. This was the second major hardcover adventure that came out. I actually, I, I ran it. I've run it two, like one and a half times, almost two times. It is another big sandbox adventure with lots and lots of, of monster closet style dungeons. And it's got a good theme and story, except the story completely changes about a third of the way in, where you start off by looking for a lost delegation of dwarves. And that kind of disappears. And you never really find them, and it never really matters what happens to them, and it re never really has any other effect on the story. And instead, you get involved in the four cults of the, uh, the, the, the four elemental cults. You delve down into these big dungeons uh, that lie underneath the Desert Valley. And the dungeons are kind of cool. 
And then eventually you come sort of face to face with an elemental prince right at the end. And one of the neat things about the adventure is that uh, whichever path you take, the other paths are doing things. There's, there's momentum that they have. It's not real easy to find out what that momentum is because it's kind of buried in later chapters. It doesn't really tell you up front how the adventure works. It also doesn't tell you how the dungeons are laid out. And it actually took my second whole running of this thing before I realized the layout of the dungeons and how, they, how they're all laid out. And that, you know, they actually all connect into one big dungeon at the bottom. Like it, it didn't occur to me that that was how they worked out, right? It was very confusing. And it, like a side view map would have helped me considerably. A flow chart would have helped me considerably, but instead I had to sort of figure it out and noodle it through with the text. So it's a big adventure. There's a lot of stuff to fight and it's kind of hard to hang on to the story of it. So it's another one that takes a lot of work to run. Uh, there's a lot of potential danger of the characters just going too deep into a dungeon and suddenly they're facing guys that are four challenge ratings higher than they're expected to be. So it's a, it's a tricky, it's a tricky adventure with a lot of things going on. And, and it's, and yeah, so, so Teos is saying, I tried to keep middle school kids interested in princes and did not succeed. It really needs a stronger plot. It really does need a stronger plot. It's a tricky one to run. Hence why it's number two from the bottom. And my, my least, you know, it's hard to say my least favorite adventure because the truth is I've run all of these and I've liked them all, right? I haven't had a bad one. I never ran a campaign and went, what a disaster. Like my players didn't have fun and I didn't have fun. And I wish I hadn't done that. That never happened with any of these. All of these I ran and all of them I had a good time. But some of them took a lot more work for me to wrangle into something that I was going to enjoy than the others. And that really, if you go from the top of this list down the list, the real way that I'm ranking these, the real order that I'm ranking them in is how much work did they make me do to turn it into a fun game, right? And you might have a different degree. You might say, I'm really interested. In, I can always make these a good game and I'm going to have to modify them anyway. So I'm really more interested in how good the stories are. And that's sort of a different criteria. I kind of enjoy the stories of all of these. So I don't know that I have one story that I prefer over another, but to me as you know, the lazy dungeon master, right. Or one of many lazy dungeon masters, I don't want to do work. And I especially don't want to do work if I spent 50 bucks on a hardback adventure. So don't make me do work. Right. So the last one, Descent into Avernus, is, is bottom of my list. And it makes me sad because I really want to like this one. And I really like the people who worked on it, but it's a mess. It's kind of clear. I've had so many discussions with people about like what happened when they put this together. And I don't really know, right? Uh, I, I can speculate that like the Baldur's Gate part got tacked on. I think this, I think this has been clarified. I don't know, but it certainly feels like the Baldur's Gate part of Descent in Avernus got tacked on in the middle of production and that made it kind of a mess. So the real issue with Descent in Avernus is a major issue with theme, which is if you play it as written, your, your, your characters are not going to want to follow through with the goal of the adventure because you're conscripted to go deal with the cult of the dead three in Baldur's Gate. And then suddenly you're going to go to hell to save another town that you've never been to that got sucked down there. Like why? So the number one most valuable thing that I did when I ran it is that I tied the characters to El Terrell, the Hellriders, and Rhea Mantlemorn, the main NPC in that adventure. And when you do that, the rest of the adventure comes, comes to light. There is a wonderful intro adventure 
Uh, yeah, there is a wonderful starter adventure called Baldur's Gate, The Fall of Elturel by Anthony Joyce and Justice Armand, and I highly recommend it. It's a much better introduction into the adventure than what comes in the book. And it's unfortunate that you spend 50 bucks on a book and you have to spend another five for an adventure to fix it, right? But it really helps. So tying the characters to Elturel makes a huge difference in the game. But then you have another thematic problem, which is sometimes you have to make really dark decisions. And characters who are trying to save a city from hell don't really want to burn souls up with soul coins. So suddenly you have this other weird theme halfway through. I found myself having to, to really remap and rebuild most of this adventure to get it to the point where it was fun for myself and my group. It has these sort of two, two different lines that you follow of quests, most of which are a variety of weird fetch quests, right? The path of demons and the path of uh, devils that you can take. I found it far better to rip those paths out and come up with a new path of my own called the path of the hell riders, and then take those locations and drop them into that path. But that was a lot of work. I was basically sort of writing my own adventure and just using the locations that they have in there. We ended up getting there and it worked, but like a couple of times we had to step outside of the game and say, okay, I'm gonna retcon some stuff because what happened isn't really what should have happened. So I was glad to have run it. I, I enjoyed it, but it made me do a lot of work. Uh, that's why Descent into Avernus is on the bottom of my list of adventures. So one of the things I think is important to remember is that with all of these published adventures, I really enjoyed running them. Like they, I ran fun games and they give you a lot of value for the money you spend. I, I wish, particularly in the latter half of these adventures, that I didn't have to do as much work to make it a workable adventure for my group, but I, I still enjoyed running them. And I still feel like I got a lot for the money that I paid. Uh, you, you, can't, you can't make homebrew campaigns with the kind of artwork and the kind of maps uh, that you can get from one of these books. So I still like them. I, don't, I'm, I never look at my shelf and say, wow, I wish I hadn't bought uh, Baldur's Gate Descent into Avernus because I like it and I'm glad I bought it. I'm glad I ran it, right? I wanted to run it. Would I run it again? Probably not. Would I run Curse of Strahd again? Probably. I run it almost every year. So certainly some of them are better than others, right? And some of them require less work than others. And that's kind of what I want to get across here. I don't know that I could say if I where I recommend them because you know how these adventures will help you is really up to you. I certainly have adventures I recommend more than others, but I don't think I would ever say to somebody, no matter what, don't play Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, or no matter what, don't play Descent into Avernus. Instead, what I would say is, if you're considering Descent into Avernus, here are the things you're going to have to do to run it, and here are the things I'd highly recommend you do. And if you have those in, in mind, if, you, if you're willing to put in that extra work, you can make a great adventure. Like, if you want to run an adventure where you're riding in massive war machines in hell, of course you should buy it, right? Like, who doesn't want to do that, right? And if you want to run a really cool Icewind Dale adventure, I mean, you can run Legacy of the Crystal Shard, but you can also run Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. And I don't think when I'm, I am having a lot of fun running it with my groups, right? We're having a good time. I do have to do more work than I would like to do, but that's fine. And I think at the end, we're going to look back and say, yeah, it was great. So I, th I think it'll be okay. I hope this gave you an opportunity to uh, uh, explore these adventures with me. Uh, I hope that if you are interested in kind of understanding where these adventures fall as you're thinking about them, I hope, I hope it gives you some information. Again, I'm just one dude with my own opinion, so you probably want to go and find other sources of information about which adventures are right for you. I don't think any of them are a complete mistake to buy. I wouldn't cross any of them off your list completely. So I hope that was useful. 
Thank you very much. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the YouTube channel below. You can also subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter, or you can join the Sly Flourish Patreon at patreon.com slash Thank you very much. Have a great day.